Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. This morning we'll be looking at verses 7 through 11. Please give your attention to God's word. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Have you ever had that dream where you wake up and you're back in high school or college And you realize that it's the day of finals. And as you walk into the room, you realize not only are you not prepared for the final, you don't even remember having gone to a single class all semester. I've had that dream all through college and still have it once in a while. Or maybe in a different setting where you have a huge presentation at work and you walk into the office and realize you forgot to prepare. My version of that is that I've had this many, many times, this dream, nightmare, where I am in a congregation, usually ten times as many people as usual, and I walk up to the pulpit and I open my folder and there's no notes. And only at that moment do I realize I haven't even picked a passage, let alone prepare a message. Now... Maybe it's only us procrastinators that get that dream. I don't know. I don't know how universal that is. But it's a really scary dream. Um, And I I thought of that dream, which, again, I have very often. I thought of that dream when I read the first phrase of this week's passage. The end of all things is at hand. That's a jarring statement. Peter means for us to catch our breath as he utters those words. The end of all things is at hand. Matter of fact, as I reflected on this, as we've been working our way through 1 Peter, do you know that in this relatively short book, Peter, the Apostle Peter, refers to the second coming of Christ and or Judgment Day 12 times in these five short chapters, 12 times. And if you flip over to Second Peter, there's three short chapters in Second Peter, and one of those chapters, the entire chapter, is devoted to the second coming of Christ. And you know what? Peter is not out of line with the rest of the New Testament. Jesus spoke very often of his second coming. I think it's one of the great tragedies of the church of the last century that we have lost that focus upon the second coming of Jesus Christ. I know why we have. At least one of the big reasons is that we've had so many 
pardon the term, crackpots out there picking dates and predicting things and giving bad teaching and writing cheesy novels and putting out cheesy movies about the second coming that we've gotten so sick of it that we don't even want to talk about it. We're embarrassed about the positions that the church has taken on the second coming, so we don't even want to talk about it. And that's a tragedy. Because as I read 1 Peter and as I read the New Testament, the Lord wants us to be focused upon the second coming. It's to be a reference point for how we live our lives every day. Paul says in Romans 13, verses 11 and 12, The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. James, in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, says, The coming of the Lord is at hand. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. John says in 1 John 2, verse 18, It is the last hour. And Jesus himself says at the end of Scripture, Revelation 22, verse 20, Surely I am coming soon. That is our great hope. It's what gets us out of bed in the morning as believers. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Wait a minute. Peter, James, John, Jesus, they lived over 2,000 years ago. Or about 2,000 years ago. Did they get it wrong? How could they say that the second coming is at hand? I think part of the problem is that we mark time with watches and calendars. That's not the way that the writers of Scripture mark time. They mark time by the the plan of redemption, redemptive history. Some of you even have in the back of your Bibles those Bible timelines. You think what a typical Bible timeline looks like. You've got the way that... God, as he looks at history, this is the way he marks it from his eternal perspective. History begins with creation. Then you have the fall. Then you have the flood. Then you have the covenant with Abram. Then you have Moses and the Exodus. Then you have the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Then you have the conquest of the promised land. Then the establishment of the kingdom under Saul and David. Then you have the exile from the land of promise. You have the return of God's people to the land of promise. All building up to that great central event of history, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, where God the Son took upon himself human flesh and dwelt in our midst. Then you have the crucifixion of Christ at the cross. Then you have the resurrection of Christ. Then you have the ascension of Christ. Then you have the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes down upon the church. What's next? The second coming of Christ. There's, you know, we're we're almost there. As the Bible marks time. I listed about 16 events in biblical history. 15 of them have been accomplished. And actually, Jesus told us there's only one thing that needs to be done before he comes again. He said, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. 
There's only one more tick on the clock of redemptive history. And if you know the study of missions at all, you follow the progress of the gospel around the world, we're getting there. Slow but sure, we're getting there. The end is at hand. How then should we live? If Peter is right, and he is, that the end is at hand, how should we live? What impact should that have on our lives? Last week, when we looked at the first six verses of chapter 4, he told us what not believing in the second coming of Christ, well, what impact that will have on your life. Being unaware of the return of Christ leads to, according to verse 3, you know, he talks about what the life in the world is like. He says, the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they, the world, those who participate, those who make, that makes up their life, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Being unaware of the second coming of Christ leads to that kind of lifestyle. So that begs the question. Knowing that Christ could come any time should affect our lifestyle how? Paul says in Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. That's Paul speaking to people who understand that the end is at hand. We need to redeem the time because these days are evil. The ESV translates that, make the best use of the time. Well, how does realizing that the end is near, how does that change how we live? How does having the second coming of Christ as a daily reference point, as your daily hope, what effect does that have on life? Peter tells us here. The first effect is that we are able to redeem the time with self-control. It's interesting. That's the first thing he points out. If you see the end is near, if you see Christ is coming, then you should live with self-control. Verse 7, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. He's talking about spiritual alertness there. Spiritual alertness. In other words... Being in control of the passions of your life so that they do not distract you from your focus upon Christ. You are to control the passions by the power of the Holy Spirit, not be controlled by them. And you are to be clear-headed, to think well, to see clearly by faith. If you remember back in chapter 1, Peter made the same connection. Verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded, same word, be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Having that clear hope, that clear vision. We talked about having a vision for the future in the hour before worship. Having that clear vision of the coming of Christ and all that that entails is going to enable you to control your passions and think clearly. And when we talk about think clearly, what we're talking about is thinking biblically. Thinking God's thoughts after him. And how do we know what God's thoughts are? Here they are. 
thinking clearly, thinking biblically. And Peter says that this spiritual alertness, that kind of control of your passions and clear biblical thinking is necessary, he says, for the sake of your prayers. Did you notice that? There's a clear connection between being in control of your passions, thinking clearly and biblically, and praying well. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus took those closest of his disciples with him into the inner parts of the garden, and he said to them, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch and pray. Control your passions, think biblically, think clearly, and pray. What did Peter do? He went to sleep. What happened shortly after Peter went to sleep? He denied three times that he even knew Jesus Christ. Peter learned his lesson. That's why he's saying here to us, think about the coming of Christ. Make that the daily reference point for your life so that you can control your passions, so that you can think clearly, so that you won't fall into temptation, so that you won't sin, so that you won't deny your Lord, so that you can pray. Prayer is a means of grace. How do you gain spiritual strength? How do you gain biblical understanding and wisdom and knowledge? It comes through the Word of God and prayer. That's our point of access to the grace that God has to give us. We need to be able to pray. And what's interesting when you think about it, spiritual intoxication, in other words, being caught up in the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of this world, being caught up in those things, and thinking like the world, having muddled spiritual thinking so that you think like the world, those, that, those two things together keep you from praying. And the problem is when you don't pray, then your spiritual intoxication becomes more intense and your thinking becomes more muddled and so you're able to pray even less. And it becomes this vicious cycle. And Peter's saying, put your hope in the return of Christ and not in this world. So that... You can control your passions, think clearly, and pray, and so that by prayer you're going to be able to control your passions and think clearly even better. And that's the beautiful cycle, the way it's supposed to work. The, you know, it, what we're talking about here, why, why does focusing on the future enable you to control your passions and think biblically? Why does that focus do that? It's all about deferred gratification. Deferred gratification. In other words, setting aside or resisting temporary pleasure so that you might be able to enjoy greater pleasure in the future. They did a study many years ago called the Stanford Marshmallow uh, Test. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or not, but what they did is they took kids between the ages of four and six and they put them in an empty room, nothing in the room except a table and a chair, and on that table, they put a, uh, uh, did I say marshmallow? marshmallow? Marshmallow. They put a marshmallow on the table, and they said to the child, we're going to leave in just a moment. When we leave, you can eat that marshmallow if you want. But if you wait 15 minutes, we'll give you two. And it's kind of funny when you read the descriptions of the test, what the kids would do. They'd, have, of course, have the camera in the room, and they'd watch these little four- or five-year-old kids 
Some of them would cover their eyes and, and just shiver as they tried to get through the 15 minutes waiting so they could get two. Some of them would walk to the other side of the room and stand in the corner and look the other way to try to keep from... Some of them went the other way and actually went over to the table and kind of stroked the marshmallow and you know, thought about what the second marshmallow might taste like. About a third of the kids, one-third of the kids, made it the 15 minutes and got the second marshmallow. What was really interesting about that test was that they followed those kids and like 10, 15, 20 years later, there was a clear connection between the ones that were able to wait the 15 minutes and get the second marshmallow and real intelligence and competency in life. That ability to defer gratification really paid off later in their lives. And isn't that really what we're talking about, spiritually speaking? Of being able to say, I'm not going to seek my pleasure in this world. I'm not going to seek my pleasure in this life. I'm not going to listen to Satan when he whispers in my ear and says, go for it now. It's better than later. I'm going to seek my treasure in heaven. I'm going to invest my life in the coming kingdom, not the world's kingdom. It's putting your hope in the second coming of Christ. Secondly, Peter says, not only does it require, redeeming the the time requires self-control, it also leads us, redeeming the time leads to selflessness. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Again, don't lose sight of the fact he begins the passage by saying, the end is at hand, the end is near. Therefore, love one another earnestly. The word earnestly there means stretched out, you know, you really, you know, and I, I think of this as a baseball fan. I think of this, the guy, he sees the ball dropping into the outfield and he's running as fast as he can to catch that ball. And at that last moment, he realizes the only way he's going to catch that ball is totally lay himself out there, you know, put his body at risk and lay himself out there to try to catch that ball in a diving catch. That's kind of the language that Peter's using here. Stretch out, put yourself out there to love one another. Go for broke. To love one another. In verse 9, it mentions hospitality. Interestingly, we tend to think, uh, you know, if you're thinking, wow, the end is coming, what am I going to do? Let's show some hospitality. But the problem is, when we think of hospitality, we're thinking of tea and cookies with our friends, our neighbors. That's not what the Bible means by hospitality. The hospitality means open your home, open your cupboards. Open your garage. Open your resources. Don't hold on to your possessions. Be, as the, as the law of Moses tells us, be open-fisted, open-handed with what God has given us. Why? Because the end is at hand. If I'm living for the next life, if I'm living for my treasures in heaven, that gives me a whole different attitude towards my house, my car, my clothes, my bank account. I'm not going to grasp onto these things. The end is at hand. I'm going to give them away because Jesus said, make friends for eternity. Don't invest in this life with the resources that he's given. You know, it's about relationships. If you're just starting in life, if you're still in elementary school or high school, I think you already get this at kind of an instinctual level or else Facebook wouldn't be so popular. But especially maybe when you get to your 20s and 30s, you need to be reminded life is about relationships. 
We're here to love other people. To invest in other people. To give to other people. You know, my parents were in their early to mid-40s when I was born. And so I had the unique privilege of watching them really grow old from close up. And it was just fascinating as they got into their 50s and 60s, the things that were really important to them, like possessions and houses and careers, I watched before my eyes, watched those things begin to fade away in their interest. What they cared about, what they were passionate about, was their children, their grandchildren, the relationships in their life. You see, that's what comes when you see the end is at hand. What's really important starts to come to the forefront. And that's the people that God puts you here to love, to care for. And it's a godly love. Peter describes that love. Do you notice he goes on to say that we're to love others earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. You know, that's actually a, an allusion to Proverbs 10, verse 12, where it says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. But when you think of love covering sins, immediately your mind goes to the cross. Because the word, the Old Testament word for atonement is the word cover. So when you think of love covering sins, a believer thinks of what Jesus did for us at the cross. He took our sins away. He allowed his perfect life to be offered up as a sacrifice on the cross in our place. He bore God's wrath in our place so that our sins would be fully condemned, fully punished, removed as far away as east is from west. And we are covered with his righteousness as a gift. That's love covering sins. Now you say, I can't do that for anybody else. I can't atone for somebody's sins. I can't die for somebody's sins. No. But there is a very real sense in which Scripture says, love one another as you have first been loved. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. In other words, you don't live for vindication or vengeance anymore. You live to love. And love overlooks sin, not because sin isn't important, not because sin doesn't need to be punished, but because Christ is the only one who can die for sin, and he's done that. And if my brother has his sins covered at the cross, if my brother has his sins taken away at the cross, then how could I not overlook those sins in love and love him, really serve him and do what's best for him? Love covers a multitude of sins. It's an eternal perspective that enables you to do that. Thirdly and finally, Peter says, redeeming the time, we do so by putting our spiritual gifts to work. It's interesting. He launches into just a brief allusion there to spiritual gifts you know most of us need deadlines to get our work done very few of us are so driven in our work our tasks that we don't need some deadline to motivate us to get it done some of us use those deadlines like a drug you know get that uh, that adrenaline flow that we need to get the work done and, you know, as I've found, especially in my line of work, you know, and, and to your, in your ministry, whatever God has called you to do in ministry, it's hard to figure out what deadlines are in ministry. What are the deadlines in kingdom work? And it's because we don't have any hard deadlines, it's hard when you look at your to-do list. It's, hard, it's very easy for loving others and ministering to others and getting the gospel to others. It's easy for those things to slip down your to-do list because there's no clear deadline. But again, we're back to the benefit of being focused on the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ. 
knowing that the end's at hand gives me my deadline. Time is short, and it's getting shorter. There are people that need to be loved. There are people who need to hear the gospel. There are disciples who need to be discipled. I need to get busy. That's why Peter says in verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I love that word varied, varied grace. God's grace is varied. The word means multicolored, multifaceted. In other words, God's grace comes in a variety of sizes, types, and colors, and qualities. God's grace is eclectic. This body of believers, this congregation of God's people is eclectic. God's varied grace takes so many different forms. And each one of you has given these gifts, your abilities, your resources, your opportunities, you're given these gifts as stewards. Stewards. Stewards are managers. In other words, they're placed in your hands so that you can use them for the benefit of others. Not selfishly. Peter divides that wide variety of gifts into two categories. And it's interesting, we use these two categories, don't we, in our ministry of our church? Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. All kinds of different gifts, but they all fall into one of those two categories, don't they? Speaking gifts, teaching gifts, preaching gifts, or serving gifts. That's why our leaders are called elders, who have the ministry of the word and prayer, and deacons, who have the ministry of service. Word and deed. But notice that if you're in a really biblical church, a good church, then it's God's oracles that are being spoken, God's words that are being spoken, and the service that is done is only being done by the strength that God supplies. That's why Peter ends this by saying he gets all the glory. All the glory goes to him because it's his word that powers the ministry and it's his strength through his spirit that enables it. So he gets the glory. This church is a storehouse of God's multi-varied grace. Skills, talent, knowledge, resources... The more we can employ them to work together for the sake of the kingdom, the bigger the impact. But it's all driven by this sense of the deadline being at hand. Our time is short and there's much to be done. Jesus told many, many parables about wealthy masters leaving their properties and their possessions in the hands of stewards and going away and then that wealthy master returning after a long period of time to, get, to call to account the stewards who are given his resources to see what they've done with them. How many parables fit that general storyline? It's an important way for us to look at our lives. He has given us his resources. They belong to him, but he's given them as gifts to us to build the kingdom, to serve others, to love others. How are we doing? I pastored a church in the uh, suburbs of Kansas City uh, many years ago, and uh, It was the fastest growing part of the suburbs on the western side of the city in Kansas City. And we had this great property. had this property that was like, I don't remember, like maybe 12, 14 acres. And we were using, we had a nice building and a parking lot, and we were using like the front five acres of the property. But there was another seven, eight acres of beautiful woodland behind the church building. 
And I was only there for three years, but in the middle of that time, we thought, you know, what do we do with that woodland? I mean, it's just sitting there, and it's very valuable because people were buying up land everywhere at high prices. What do we do with it? And it was just amazing to me, again, just the natural way we sinners think, how many people, there was a very strong majority when you put two groups of people together, one group of people who said, we want a buffer. We want that beautiful woodland as a buffer to keep the suburbs from encroaching on our church property too much. You had that group of people, and then you had another group of people who said, we need to hold on to that, because if we sell it, then we don't have it, you know, and that's kind of security for us. So that's, that's, that's just, as long as we have that property, that gives us a little extra material and financial security. You put those two groups together, the ones who wanted the beautiful, pretty buffer and the ones who wanted the security, and that was a majority of the congregation. And it was impossible to actually think about selling that property so that we could turn those resources into some very real, meaningful ministry needs. Now, not to draw you into a congregational argument that you have no interest or part in, but to me, it really doesn't, you see how seeing the end is at hand affects how you make decisions like that. If the end is at hand, then I'm not here to have a comfortable living situation with beautiful borders, and I'm not here for earthly security. I'm not resting my trust in my bank account. I've got resources. I want to use them the best way. Now, sometimes that means delaying and using the resources at some point in the future. But I'm just saying, are you living for the here and now? Or are you living for eternity? Do you see Christ is coming again soon? How does that affect the way that you look at ministry? We are on a wartime mission here. We are at war. We're in the midst of battles all over the place. And we need to think like warriors and soldiers and not like suburbanites. You and your God-given abilities are the main resource of this church. Are you using them for earthly gain for yourself? Are you using them for eternal gain for the kingdom? The end of all things is at hand. It's time to refocus. And it's time to get to work. Christ is coming. Make that a daily, a daily awareness in your life. Christ is coming soon, he promised. Therefore, be self-controlled and clear-headed. Christ is coming. So stretch yourself out there in loving others. Make relationships the important part of life they should be. Christ is coming. So assess your gifts and put them to work for the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder from your word this morning that Peter gives us, that the end is at hand. Christ is coming soon. All that needs to be accomplished for our salvation has been accomplished except his return. Help us to keep our focus there and let us be changed by that hope, by your grace, by your word, by your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.